Good morning. Uh, welcome as, as we continue our series this morning uh, in the book of Romans. You know, we started just last week, and so we're going to continue today uh, looking at the end of, of Romans chapter 1. And uh, I'm just going to be candid with you as we begin. Uh, this is a hard text this morning. There's some difficult things, especially in light of our culture and where we live. It's just really difficult. Now, I'll give you an example as to why. Actually, uh, on my way here this morning, and I was driving, uh, I was going to Home Depot and before I came here. And as I was driving down the highway, car flies up behind me, right up on my tail, comes flying up on me. And I look in my rearview mirror. And their, their front license plate in all caps says, move over. And without even thinking, without even in a split second, without even giving much thought to this at all, do you know what I did? I immediately slowed down. Now, I'm sorry to admit it, but that was my reaction. Someone pulls up right on top of me and says, move over and tells me to do that. Or that's the way I perceived it reading this license plate. I immediately slow down. Now, in, in my defense, I was coming up to a light. Uh, there was no place to go. There's a bunch of cars in front of me. It really wouldn't have done any good to move over. But if I'm honest, I, I immediately slowed down precisely because the license plate told me to move over. No, you can't tell me what to do. I'm not going to do that. Maybe you feel that at different times. I, I certainly do, if I'm honest. And, and most likely, uh, you do too. Because of the culture that we live in and the way that we experience things because we live in America uh, in 2020. We live in a society that is one of the most individualistic societies, if not the most individualistic society in the history of the world. But we're also in a society that's very relativistic in the way that we operate. And what I mean by that is we have a unique combination of you can't tell me what to do combined with. Uh, you do whatever you want and I'll do whatever I want. As long as no one hurts one another, everything's OK. There's no absolutes. It's, it's relativistic. Everything's relative. And so we're so inundated with that all the time. I say this frequently, but our goal here is to make disciples who make disciples. But the truth is, every single one of us, instead of being discipled under the lordship of Jesus, it's being discipled by our culture all around us. And simply put, that's why it makes this text very hard. God's going to make some absolute claims in this text when we read it. God is the truth, the ultimate reality. And as such, when he makes these absolute claims, it can be very hard in our society and our culture for us to hear. But we're also going to see that God makes absolute claims and he's completely just in doing so. And that what he tells us is that when we rebel, there's consequences. In fact, it makes perfect sense in that God has created the world in a particular way with a particular purpose. And if we go against them, there's disintegration. There's an unraveling. There are consequences to our treason. And maybe that sounds a bit odd, but it is treasonous by the very definition when we rebel against God. Treason just means betrayal or rebellion against one's sovereign. And God, who is sovereign over his world and his creation, and he has revealed himself to us, when we throw him off, that's exactly what it is. And as such, God makes these absolute claims. But in our rebellion, we try to throw him off. And what it's going to tell us is that we deserve his perfect, holy, righteous anger, what the Bible calls his wrath. 
Now, we are all in this category. Every single person who's ever lived, with the exception of Jesus himself, deserves God's wrath. And we deserve death for our rebellion. Now, I'm going to just start right here with, I recognize that makes for a very difficult sermon. But I would just ask that you would labor with me as we work our way through Romans chapter 1, the second half. And, and see the reasoning of what Paul's saying here, what God has revealed about who he is and how we approach him. And so this is the way I want us to look at it. In our rebellion, every single one of us has rebelled against God. Every single one of us has sinned. And so first, we deserve God's wrath because of our sin. But secondly, I want us to consider the heart attitude, or our heart's default that leads us into that rebellion. And then thirdly, that rebellion, as we as we uh, embrace these heart attitudes, as we continue to struggle with that, it leads to a downward spiral that calls all sorts of issues. And then finally, we'll consider the answer to all of this. How do we uh, address God's wrath? How do we address all these things and seek to follow him as he calls us to? And so let's start with just that question of why we deserve God's wrath. Romans chapter one, we're going to pick up in verse 18. We stopped last week at verse 17. We're picking up at 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation in the world of the world in the things that have been made. So we are without excuse. And for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so what Paul says is the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That is, God is perfect in every way. He is holy uh, and his holy, uh, perfect, righteous anger is against sin. He's perfectly correct in being angry at sin. So we say this often here at Coda. Sin is ignoring or rebelling against God and the world he created. Or in other words, it's going against what God has revealed to us about who he is and how we are to live. And so that's a hard thing for our society to hear. It's a hard thing for a believer, a follower of Jesus to hear in our sinfulness or in our unbelief. And we always go back to this at different times of unbelief. And it's struggle because our society is saying something totally different, that there is no absolute truth, that all things are relative, that we can operate any way that we feel that our feelings trump everything else. And God says, no. That's a lie. That is not the truth of how my creation works. And so we're in an impasse pretty quickly. God's view as given to us by him in his word stands in direct opposition of what so much of our culture would say today. And so I want us to think about what he's unfolded for us in his word. God is the creator of the world. In the beginning was God. Before there was anything was made and then God spoke and everything we know about our world came into existence as he spoke everything. Now, I say this often and I would challenge you to really wrestle with the implications of this statement and really think about it. You exist because God says so. 
Not only do you exist because God says so, but you continue to draw breath to be in existence at this very moment, purely and completely by God's sovereign will and his grace to you. Hebrews says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or we could just say you exist because God says so. I exist because God says so. The ground that we are standing on exists because God said so. And although you and I have rebelled against him and sin, he allows us through his grace and his kindness and his long suffering and his patience to continue in existence. He upholds us by the power of his word. And so when we say things like I'm able to decide what is right and wrong, I am only accountable to me. I do what I want. All of those are acts of rebellion against the one who created you. When we say, I am my own person and I don't need anything and I'm completely independent, I make my own judgments, I'm not beholden to anyone or anything, that's a lie. You owe everything to God, the one who holds you in existence by his word. You exist because he says so. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment, that we owe everything to God. I would say many of us, if not all of us, get bent out of shape pretty quickly with someone else telling us what to do, right? The car pulling up behind me. I'm going to immediately slow down. You can't tell me to move over or to get out of your way, right? Uh, There's so many things that people would say to us and we go, well, that's my right and I want to have that and no one can tell me. And some of that's not, not a bad impulse in the sense of we have inalienable rights and we have things that we stand up for and we want to protect in our country and, and that's not a bad thing. But I want you just to think about it, our natural response in so many ways. Like, I don't like it when my homeowners association wants me to submit uh, the color I want to paint my house. I want to go, it's my house. I should be able to decide that. Or maybe you felt that right now in this pandemic when they started to put all these restrictions about where you can go and what you can do and how you can do it and how you operate your business. And people go, well, wait a second. Who are you to tell me that? And we feel that. But I want you to consider for just a moment God's perspective on his world that he created all things. The God who holds you in existence by the power of his word. He reveals himself to you in his conscience, in your conscience. You're made in his image, in his creation, in his word, and ultimately in his son, Jesus coming to us. And yet we say, yeah, I think I know better. I think I can do whatever I feel. I think I can do the things that I feel. I don't need your guidance. I'm good. And so God tells us exactly what is true and what we ultimately need and what's ultimately our best. And we throw that off. And Paul says that's exactly what happens here. And so this passage is talking about those that are in direct opposition of God and what he's revealed to us, which is all of us apart from Jesus, every single one of us are guilty of treason before or against God, every one of us, since we owe everything to him. But it's so important for us when we start to really think this through. And I say this often, but we need to have the understanding that all sin is against God. Now, all of it, every bit of it. Uh, Now, you may tell a lie uh, to a friend of yours. You may tell a little, I'm going to just shade this 
and I'm going to do it because if I told them the truth, it would hurt their feelings. And so I'm going to shade the truth in such a way. And you think, oh, it's no big deal. And it's not really hurting anyone. It's actually maybe helping them, we might say. And so it's not a big deal. But the truth is, when we lie, we are sinning and we are sinning against God because God told us in the world that he created that it functions best. It functions best like this, that you tell the truth. That you speak the truth. Not that you shade it when you feel like it's okay. Not that it's okay when you decide to lie. And so as such, because it's God's world and he made it and he knows how it works. When we sin, we're sinning against God. His word is the final authority on the world he created. Now, you might say, okay, I get it. If we believe that, if we believe it's God's world, it makes sense that we answer to him fine. He makes the rules. It's his world. Maybe we would uh, say, okay, I get that. But one of the objections then comes, but why does it say wrath? Why does it say there in chapter one, the wrath of God is revealed against from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, the holy, righteous anger of God. Why is God so angry? And I often think we we struggle with this until we try to hide it or we try to reimagine it or we try to remove it from the way we talk and explain our theology. But We need to see exactly what scripture says and let it speak for itself. God, who is perfect in every way, must hate things that are evil and destructive and that go against the fabric of the way he's made his world. Precisely because he's loving. Because he knows how his creation works and how it functions and the things that go against it that are destructive. If God were just apathetic to it, he would cease to be God. For God to be perfectly loving and perfectly holy and perfectly just in every way, he must be angry at things that bring destruction to his good creation or he ceases to be God. And so sometimes people want to pit God's love against God's wrath. But the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. God's divine hatred of sin is because he's loving They are not at odds. I'll give you an example. Working with a a bunch of young men who have dealt with addiction through the years. And what you see is their families being angry at their addiction. And this happens often. And it's not because they don't love them. They don't love the one who's in the addiction. It's precisely because they love them. They're angry at the addiction and the destructive nature of it precisely because they love. They're not opposed to each other. And so simply put, when we look at God's word, he knows what is best and our rebellions has consequences because of the very character of God and the in his character. His righteous anger is born of his love as he wants what's best for us and his creation. So how do we miss this? Why do we struggle so much? Go back to verse 18 and what he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them and because God has shown it to them for his entirely perceived ever since the creation of the world. And in these things, in the things that have been made and so they are without excuse and for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds 
and animals and creeping things. And so there's two things here, two heart conditions. And this is certainly not all encompassing, but it's what the argument here that Paul lays out before us. And he says they suppress the truth. And there's two things that kind of lead to that. And the first one I would say to you is we we suppress the truth because of arrogance. Right at the end of verse 18, it says who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth because we're sinful. But then he says what can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to us and he's shown it to us in, in, in creation. He's shown it to us all around in our conscience. He says innately we know things being made in God's image about who he is. But we see it in natural revelation. That is the creation. The things around us bear witness to the glory of God. And he says, yet in our arrogance, we profess to be wise and we become fools and we say the creation is all there is. We worship the creation over the one who created it. And so let me give you an example as we think about that. How the creation screams of there is a creator. How it points us to that and how we suppress that truth. You know, we could go to the prevailing theory today, the prevailing scientific theory that the earth is 13.7 billion years old. And we got here through random chance that there is no first cause. There is no creator. The world began with began with what we call the Big Bang, which if you go and you look at the definition of the Big Bang, it just simply says this, that all matter Uh, condensed to an infinitesimally small point, and then there was an explosion, and everything we see came out of that explosion. Or or another way to say it, it condensed to an infinitesimally small point. So there was nothing, and there was something, and it happened in an instant, and there's no cause. But there's a lot of problems when we start to unravel that. And any intellectually honest scientist or philosopher will tell you there's many, many unanswered things in this model. I'll give you just a couple. Where did the matter come from? Well, we don't know. How does organic life spring from non-organic life, even though we've never been able to replicate that? And we can't even put odds on the possibility of that happening because the odds are so astronomically high. Hi, there are no odds. Or where does consciousness come from? Well, we don't know. Yet we want to insist on today that there is no God and there's not even a possibility to God. Many will hold that despite the problems with it. I'll give you an example of this. Suppressing the truth. Professing to be wise that we've become fools. I remember watching an interview years ago with Richard Dawkins, famed evolutionary biologist and also one of the most well-known atheists of today. And in this interview, Dawkins is talking about uh, very confidently how he is certain there is no God. And there cannot be and who would want there to be. And so he goes down his kind of normal uh, reasoning as as to why. And so the interviewer asks him, he says, what are the percentages? What percentage would you put on it? If you had to put a percentage on it, what percentage would you put on it that there's no God? And he said, oh, I would say it's, it's 99%. Somewhere in that realm, almost an absolute certainty. And the interviewer said, well, could it be maybe 97%? And he said, well, well, I really don't like putting numbers on that. I don't really, really, I really don't know. And he kind of backtracked on it and he kept pushing. And he said, well, could it be 75% or, or maybe 47%? And he said, well, 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 we don't know. We can't know. 
No one can know for sure. And so quickly he went from 99% to no one knows, which is really agnostic, not atheist. But he quickly goes back to that. But then just a little while later in the very same conversation, he begins to give a hypothesis of, of how the earth could have formed and how life could have sprung and how inorganic matter could could give way to organic matter. These things that we can't answer. And he says, well, possibly there's a higher intelligence that is an ancient civilization somewhere else in the galaxy that seeded our planet. That is a higher intelligence came and and seeded uh, our planet for it to begin because we don't have answers for it. And so what he says, the leading atheist in the world, that maybe there's a higher intelligence out there that could have seeded our planet, but it most certainly could not be God. And I watched that interview and I listened to him say these things. And Romans one was ringing in my mind. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so you are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so we decide in our arrogance that we are all there is. That this material world is all that exists, which, by the way, is a religious belief that is a philosophical statement that has nothing to do with science. But yet we want to hold to that and profess to be wise and say there is nothing else. But there's a second thing here besides the arrogance. If you go back and and you look at uh, verse 21 and you read what he says there, he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. He says they did not give thanks to him. And so with that arrogance is an ingratitude of the things that we take for granted in our world. There's absolutes all around us, the the foundation we're standing on, and yet we deny that they come from the creator. There's an ingratitude. Right. So namely, we could say uh, that there is a morality, that there's a right and wrong. Of which if you ascribe to material naturalism, that the created order is all there is, there's no good reason for it. That there is justice and injustice, which we see all around us, which is a good thing. Our desire for justice is because we're made in our creator's image. That there is truth. That it is good to report the truth, to speak the truth on which all science is based. That we would be truth telling. But if we remove a a creator and order from our universe, we have no good reason to believe any of these things. And so it's literally like the the ground we're standing on. We have an ingratitude towards the creator who's given it to us. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And so it it makes me think of C.S. Lewis's testimony. If you know C.S. Lewis, he became one of the greatest Christian apologists, wonderful author that wrote many beloved books. But he spent a, a good portion of his life as an atheist. And originally he was an atheist because of the cruelty of life in general. As a young man, his mother would die when he was very young. He would fight in World War One and see cruelty and awful things. Overall, he just saw that life was cruel and, and people die young and bad things happen and there's violence out there and he didn't like it. 
And he came to the belief that I don't believe in a God who would make a world like this. And maybe you too have had a similar struggle or you know someone who's had a similar struggle. But then Lewis recounts a problem with his own reasoning. As later in life, he would become a believer. He hadn't given the proper weight to his convictions and where they come from. And so he said something like this. My argument against God was the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it's nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies, but consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. We know right and wrong. We know just and unjust. And when we don't acknowledge the realities outside of us, it can lead to this futile thinking that does the opposite. Instead of giving thanks to God for the truth and justice and the things that he has innately put in us because we are made in his image, we deny his existence along with the very foundation that we're standing on. And so we suppress the truth through our arrogance and our ingratitude. And when that happens, and this takes us to the third thing, is there's a quickly a downward spiral as we begin to worship the creation over the creator. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so what Paul says, what happens is that God says you end up worshiping the creation, living by the lusts of your heart and operating under dishonorable passions. So what does that mean? God's creation is ordered and it's purposeful. It's not accidental. It's not random. And in his creation, there's a way in which the design functions best for God's glory and our good. And in our sinfulness, when we throw off God, we begin to seek to replace him with something else because innately in us is a desire for our creator. We are made to know and love God first and then to love others. And when we throw that off, we go looking for it in other places and in other ways. And when we do, the results are catastrophic. And so when we continue in arrogance and ingratitude, foolish thinking comes. And what it tells us, and this is a very difficult part of this passage to consider, that God says, okay, your will be done. Now, that doesn't mean you're beyond his reach. It doesn't mean that you aren't made in his image. It doesn't mean that you can't come back to a right relationship with him. But it does mean this, that God, in the face of continued rebellion, as you say, I want my world to function on what I believe and my truth and what I think, he says, okay, your will be done. And he hands you over to the passions of your flesh. Which we could summarize in this way. Passions of our flesh is seeing that all that there is is me and what I decide instead of being made for God and pointing to him. And so he says, fine, seek your meaning and purpose in life based on you and what you believe and what you think and nothing else. And as that happens, there's a futility that floods in. 
We'll talk about that later as we get to chapter eight, this futility that's built into creation. And it's hard for us to hear. And I want you to consider why. Because God says that in the passions of your flesh that is yours and it's in you and yourself apart from God, that your passions become distorted and you're not operating in the way that the world was created because you're making it all about you rather than God. And there's a downward spiral that quickly happens because of this lie that we've embraced. And it's extremely difficult for our culture today to hear this biblical truth. And I want you to consider why he says your feelings and your passions and your lust that our world says are the real you that will ultimately bring you happiness is a lie. See, when you turn your back on God and you begin to define reality and what will what will ultimately make you happy by yourself. Instead of what God has said, you worship the creation over the creator. And the ends of this is you trying to find ultimate meaning and purpose in something you cannot do. It's like running a race that will never end that you can never win. Now, our culture will say that's exactly what you do. You be you. You follow you. You live your truth. You live your life and follow your passions, whatever they are. It's all completely up to you, which are all hallmarks of a relativistic society. But here's what God says to that. When you do that, you have become a fool. That you are looking inwardly to something that can only be found outwardly in the creator who made you and sustained you and holds you together by the word of his power. You see, real meaning and real love and real acceptance and real joy will only be available in fullness in the relationship with God. But if you look inwardly to yourself and you place your identity and your life and all of it based on your feeling and your passions and your all on you. It is futile and it is foolish. Here Paul talks about homosexuality being a sin. Yes, God says here in Romans chapter one and all through scripture that homosexuality is a sin. And the language he uses is because it goes against God's natural order. And if you remove God and what he says, you operate without him. You end up thinking you're the center. It centers on you and who you truly are, your passions and how you feel and your feelings. But our feelings betray us. And I know this is very, very hard to say today in our culture because we celebrate things that are opposed to what God says because of our feelings and our passions. We do the opposite. How I feel about it trumps everything else. But here is the hard part for us to hear. And I want to be sensitive to this reality. It says in our sinfulness, God gives us over to our passions. It says your will be done. Okay. You're rebelling against me being the Lord of your life and me being the creator of all things. And so you can pursue your passions. And so it's real feelings. Things that we really are passionate about and we feel. But it's not what God has designed us for. We've we've turned to our sinful nature rather than what God has defined as the world and how it works. Instead of him deciding, we take it upon ourselves. And it's hard for us to hear because it is real feelings. It is things that we feel deeply in us. 
It is passions that we have. But it says those passions are, are, are betrayed because we've continued to seek all of that apart from God rather than through him. But I want to be clear here. Although Paul uses this example and he comes back to the sin of homosexuality. It's true of every single one of us. Every single person who has ever lived has pursued passions and desires or or the lust that it talks about here, which really literally means an over desire uh, an all controlling uh, drive and longing that only God can fulfill that we put in other things. And every single one of us does it. There's not categories of, of this is the really bad ones and these are not quite as bad. They're all the same thing in which we're replacing the truth of God for a lie and we're worshiping the creation over the creator. And the same is true whether it's sexuality, whether it's getting ultimate meaning and purpose from your family or your children or your job or your stuff, your house your car, whatever it may be, all of those things are exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping the creation over the creator. And here's the thing that I want us to see and take away here. This whole list, all sin is ignoring God in the world he created, and it ultimately ends in the same place. Worshiping and making our lives center around things that will never bring the fullness of what God wants for his world and his people. Whether it's Sexuality or anger or greed or being a workaholic or any of those things. We're seeking to get our identity and our purpose by what we do and how we feel rather than who God is and what he says about who we are. Every one of us is in need. Every one of us has ignored him. Every one of us has embraced a lie over the truth. And as such, we deserve the holy, righteous anger of God on us. And this is every one of us. So what's the answer? As hard it is to hear uh, some of this truth. The good news is good news. And it's why Paul says, and we looked at this last week, if you want to go back and, and look at that again in verse 16, that I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Because the gospel saves us from us. In our rebellion, we become fools and we worship the creation over the creator. We seek for ultimate meaning and purpose from within when it's only found in him, our creator. And since we do and we deserve God's wrath and we can never do anything to to cleanse ourselves or to make us perfect or to be able to be in perfect unity with a holy, righteous God. God comes to us and does for us what we could never do for ourselves said this last week, there's so many facets of the gospel. But what is so critical that we see here this morning is that in the heart of the gospel, God saves us from us. It's a hard truth that we need to be saved and that we cannot do it ourselves. But the flip side of that is God loves you so much that he wants your very best. And he's come to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He doesn't leave us floundering in our sins, searching for meaning and purpose in the creation alone. He comes and pursues us. He says, I will take your sin and your rebellion. I will pay for it myself. I will come and live within you and reform your desires. I will bring you from one degree of glory to another as I bring this relationship in and with you through what Jesus has done. And he says, I will save you from yourself. 
And there and only there can we find ultimate meaning and purpose and fulfillment. It will not be found in the created order. It will only be found in the creator. And so God loves us so much that he tells us the truth. That he reveals to us the reality of our rebellion and the depths of that. But he also shows us his great love for us by coming to address our need. And so I pray that as we consider the truth, the difficult truth of God's word, that we would come under his word and what he's told us. That we would repent from seeking ultimate meaning and purpose in the creation and look to the creator and what he's done for us. And so let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. I pray that you would convict us of the areas in which we have worshipped the creation over the creator as, as each and every one of us does this at different times. We thank you that you show us, that you teach us, that you meet us in that. I pray that you would continue uh, to draw us close to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.